as we will be in that day when our faith shall become sight. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who indwells us, that uh, confirms to us that we are children of God. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that we can come before you. And Lord, gather together on this Lord's Day as we do each Sunday that, Lord, it doesn't get old to us. In fact, it prepares us for what we shall do for eternity, to be forever with you. And so we thank you for that hope. We thank you for gathering us together to worship this morning. Lord, we don't just pray for ourselves. We lift up other churches. We think of Blackburn's Chapel out in Three Top and Todd. We ask that you would be with them, that you would continue to work in and through that fellowship, Lord, that your gospel would be central, that you would work uh, in them and through them. And we just commit them to you, Lord. We pray for uh, other churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We lift up Miller Valley Baptist Church and Pastor uh, Chris Marley, Lord, that you'd be uh, with him this morning as he preaches your word. Lord, we ask that you would be with them as they gather, that uh, you would give them wisdom in the ministry there in Arizona, that, Father, you would uh, make them um, just uh, to desire you, Lord, and to worship you. We ask that you would give them great boldness in sharing the gospel in their community. Lord, we also lift up the persecuted church. We know that uh, we are quite blessed in the Western world to not uh, have fear of reprisals just for meeting, but we do know that's possible even here. But Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Yemen uh, this morning, Lord, that you would be with them in East Africa. Lord, we know that uh, persecution of your church is active in many parts of Africa, and we ask that you would uh, give believers their strength um, to uh, put up underneath that pressure, Lord, that they would not um, compromise, Lord, that you would help them to be, to stand firm in their faith. Father, for those who are uh, imprisoned falsely, that you would provide for them even this hour in their dark cells. Lord, that your presence would be made known, that uh, just as Paul and Silas were imprisoned for being um, your apostles, that, Lord, you would give them great joy and even a song in their heart. Lord, we pray that you would um, be with those that are uh, set apart for uh, being put to death for their faith, that, Lord, you would give them great boldness as they look unto you, the author and finisher of their faith. Father, we know that there's many places that the gospel has not reached yet in generation. We lift unreached people uh, groups in Indonesia, Lord. We lift up the Bangku people, that you would bring the gospel to them, that you would send missionaries to them, Lord, that you would bring salvation to uh, the Bangku people. Lord, we ask that you would do that as you are calling uh, some from every nation, tribe, and tongue, that we would uh, seek uh, your fame in all the world. Father, we lift up the troubles in many places. We think of Sudan. We think of the war in Ukraine. Uh, other uprisings like in Niger this week uh, in Africa um, where a coup happened. Lord, we just lift these things up to you. And we know that the wrestlings of this world will continue and the moans until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns. We ask that you would strengthen the church in these places. That, Lord, your people would stand firm. That they would be good citizens, but they would also trust you. Father, we lift up uh, refugees in many places. We lift up our military. Uh, we just ask for your strength for them, Lord, in lonely days, in separation from their families and the comforts of home. 
Father, we lift up those who are grieving. We lift up the family um, in this community, the Peterson family who uh, lost a son, Lord, to a, um, a tractor accident this week. Lord, that you would be with that family as they grieve. Father, that uh, the friends and family, that you would be with them, that you would comfort them. Lord, we pray for your uh, comfort to Ethan and Kaylee, too, as they continue to grieve um, her maternal grandmother's death. And uh, we just thank you for um, being able to come to you in a time of comfort, uh, that you are able to comfort us uh, in so many ways as the, um, the hope of our souls. Father, we lift up our expectant mothers. We think of Ellie and Sarah, Lord, that you'd be with them. Um, that you would give them grace, Lord, as the hours draw near, especially for Ellie, Lord, that you would be with her, that you give her strength, Lord, that you would give this baby strength as um, they, they near the delivery date, Lord, that there would be no complications and that you would give her peace and that you would relieve her anxieties and John's anxieties, Lord, that they would trust you. Father, we pray for continued healing for many. Uh, Lord, there's been many... Um, uh, cancer diagnoses really, uh, recently, that you would be with these. Father, we thank you for Bonnie's uh, mother, Yarby, Lord, as she had uh, surgery yesterday, or Friday, rather, and that you would uh, continue the healing on her finger, Lord, as they remove that cancerous spot. Thank you for a relief from pain, and we pray for complete healing there. Lord, we lift up uh, Amy Schwartz's sister, Kelsey, Lord, as she continues to battle cancer. Father, um, help her to trust you. And, Lord, that you would give um, her just, um, just the faith to uh, endure uh, just this trying time. Lord, that you would be with Amy as she loves her sister very much and as she uh, wrestles with wanting to be there but also being here, um, that you would help her with that and give her wisdom and the family wisdom, Lord. Father, we thank you for the healing that you're bringing Lisa uh, Lemire, Lord, in this spot that was removed um, on her chin, that you would bring complete healing the scars would not be uh, long-lasting, but that you would uh, protect her from future cancer. Uh, we thank you uh, for your grace there. Father, we lift up Christina Graybill as well, Lord, that you'd be with her in uh, her um, starting treatments, Lord, that you would help these treatments to accomplish their intended purposes, that you would give um, a freedom from anxiety for her and Paul as well, Lord, that you would give them strength, we pray, that they would look full into your face, Lord, um, that you are going to give them what they need uh, in this time of trial. Father, we lift up Dean Mundy to you, Lord, that you would continue to heal his Bell's palsy, that, Lord, it would clear up uh, quickly that he might get back to work. We pray for his salvation. We pray that he would have a, a, a softening of his heart, um, Lord, and that you would give him a new heart, and, Lord, that you would redeem him, we pray. Father, we pray for John Cordy as well, the missionaries in Arizona, that you would heal him in his battle with esophageal cancer. We lift him to you. Father, here in our own congregation, we thank you for the healing that you bring in Kitty, and Lord, that you would continue to uh, fuse those bones, that clavicle bone, Lord, that you would uh, help her to uh, have freedom of movement once again. We continue to lift up Trevor Johnson and his family, uh, Lord, missionaries um, in Papua New Guinea. Father, for uh, Christ alone, uh, the church plant down in Wilkesboro, we thank you for them. We thank you for Pastor Tim and his wife, Cindy, that you would continue to strengthen them. Lord, bring healing to uh, Tim's foot, Lord, as he um, continues to heal from the procedure he had. Uh, Lord, we look forward to tonight hearing an update uh, about how things are going down there. 
We thank you for your grace uh, at Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would raise up more leaders, Lord, for that church and our own, Lord, that you would be glorified in that. Father, we pray for our college students that are departing in just a few weeks, that you would be with them, that you give them strength, Lord, to not just uh, engage in their studies, but Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would uh, find fellowship with other believers, that they would not be led astray uh, and tempted by the evil one, but Lord, that you would give them strength of heart and uh, a purpose of mind to um, do what you are preparing uh, in their lives to, to serve you with. And so we lift them to you. Father, finally, as we go to your word and to the rest of this worship service, would you be glorified, we pray, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you all on this uh, summer morning. I thank the Lord for the rain, just kind of keeping it cool. Um, we're thankful for that. Uh, thankful for our children. Uh, I have a few children's bulletins that, as promised, I would respond to. Thank you for your notes of encouragement, children, and what you're writing in those. Uh, a few uh, from earlier in Genesis that we're still catching up on. I get so many of them. Um, I, I try not to get behind, but it's by nature um, getting, getting behind uh, with so many of them. So I'm trying to do three this morning. But this is earlier from Genesis. The question was, what does the name Melchizedek mean? And that's a wonderful question. Melchizedek is a Hebrew word that fuses basically two Hebrew words together. Melech, which means king, and Tzedek, which is righteousness. And so if you put those together, it's king of righteousness. Melech or Melech and Melchizedek, when you put those together, means king of righteousness. So great question. And as we looked at, the king Melchizedek was a type um, that we see in the Old Testament of what Christ would be. And we looked at that in Hebrews. So I encourage you to read about that in the book of Hebrews as well as what we've been looking at in Genesis. Second question is, are we, to be, uh, are we all called to do notable things? Can God really talk? These are children's questions, y'all. These challenge me and these are great. Are we called to be all do big, notable things? And the answer is no. We're not all called to do notable things. However, depends on how you define that. Notable between uh, before men, no, not necessarily. Some of us will live our lives in utter obscurity to the rest of the world. We'll live faithfully. We'll raise a family. We'll teach them. We'll disciple them. We'll share the gospel with our friends and family. And that may be the life of faithfulness for some. But for others, God does raise up leaders to do notable things that will go down in history. And so this is a great question. But are we always called to do that? The answer would be no, that we're not always called to do notable things in the eyes of man. But in the eyes of God, we are doing notable things when we live according to his word. So that's a great question. And the second part of that question was, does God really talk? Excellent. Well, the question uh, is, is uh, two-sided. First of all, God, we know, is a spirit, right? He is, does not have a body like man, as you might be learning in catechism. But we do know that when we look at the scriptures, that God communicates, that he speaks, yes, audibly at times, to those he's speaking to. So while God doesn't have a body and he's not like man in that way, he does communicate. Now we know with Jesus coming 
um, as the God-man, the Messiah, that he certainly taught. And we know that Jesus is in heaven, that he's the firstborn among the dead, and that we're going to see him face to face. And he very much is still human. He's risen from the dead, and we will see him, and we will be able to touch him like his disciples did, and we'll very much be able to talk with him. So that's a two-sided thing. It's a, a yes and no in the sense of him really talking. Now, in our day, when you look to hear his voice, the scriptures don't tell us to seek after that, but to listen to him. And how does he speak to us? Mainly through his word. And I would point you in short, there's longer answers to this, but Hebrews 1 tells us that in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So I encourage you to look at God's word, talk to your parents about that, or talk to me. I'd be happy to answer that more in depth. And finally, how long was Abraham and Lot's journey? Well, the scriptures are silent about exactly how long it took, but we know they came from Ur of the Chaldees to what is present-day Israel or the land of Canaan. And so if they were going by foot or by uh, horseback or donkey back, um, in, or camel even, they probably would have taken weeks to get there. So that's a great question about how long that journey would have been. And remember, God called Abram to go to a land that he did not know. God was going to lead him. And so there was very much a, uh, a caravan of people because he raised up all of Abram's household. And Abram was very rich. So he had lots uh, that he was um, carrying with him. So the journey probably took uh, several weeks. So great questions. I can tell you guys are interacting with the Lord's word and we are grateful uh, to God uh, for you children. And we uh, remember all that the Lord is doing in and through your lives. Well, with that said, would you turn it in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19? This is our text this morning. Genesis chapter 19. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? We will be reading uh, verses 1 through 22. Again, this is God's word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now, we will deal worse with you than with them. 
Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against, uh, against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were uh, to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is of a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Have you ever pushed the limit of being on time at the last second? Perhaps you're like me with a large family and busy schedules. We often push our limits in being punctual and fail oftentimes. I remember a time when I was traveling in Europe and getting on the um, train to get to the uh, airport in Italy, in Rome. And as you know, Rome is a very busy airport. And as I was rushing on to a packed train that was going to take me to the airport, I was one of the last ones in on this train and I had to get in. And it was one of those automatic doors that open up and warns you in multiple languages that the doors will be closing. Well, there was so many people in there, I said, there's absolutely no way I can get in there, but I'm going to try. And so I went in in the very European way and just kind of gently nudged everybody so I could get in. And I got my body in and I was thinking, I made it last minute. Little did I know my backpack was sticking out the door and the doors closed between me and my backpack. And to the look of astonishment in many different languages, people were pointing at me like, your backpack is stuck. And I could do nothing. I couldn't move. My straps were tight and the train was about to depart. The next thought was, this is going to hurt. The other thing was that maybe by God's grace, even though it's an automated train, has some kind of sensor that I'm stuck in the door. And sure enough, 
as the train began to depart and you could feel the brakes uh, release, the doors opened once again and there was a, a, an inter, uh, interim period where we had 15 to 20 seconds to readjust and get my backpack inside before the doors closed. You might say, I got in by the skin of my teeth. Well, our passage today is nothing less. When God delivers his people, he does it well. We see the great judgment of God coming upon this city, which we won't look at the judgment. We'll look at that later in chapter 19. But in the context of this, we know that it's been coming. Just by way of review, remember that we know that back in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, that Lot sought to go to this land. And he didn't seek it for sinful reasons, but natural reasons. If you look back to chapter 13, verse 10, it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now notice in parentheses, even in chapter 13, it says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, it seemed like a good place to live. It was a fertile area. It was green. It had water. It had wells. It seemed to him a good place to go. And we remember from uh, when uh, Abraham and Lot separated that uh, Lot went uh, to Zoar and then we saw that uh, Abraham went his direction to what was promised him as far as the land was concerned. And so when we see that, we see again that there was a reputation for Sodom. If you look down to verse 13 in chapter 13 as well, we see that it said this about them. It says, now the men specifically of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So this was way back when Abraham and Lot separated. So some time has uh, elapsed from chapter 13 to where we're at here in chapter 19. And then turn over to chapter 14, just by way of reminder that Abraham, we're not going to read it, but you can uh, uh, look it over, that uh, God brought Abraham to rescue his nephew Lot. Do you remember that? And where was uh, his nephew dwelling at the time? Well, in Sodom. And so the, uh, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 8 of chapter 14 tells us that that these were amongst the people that were delivered from the raiding armies of uh, Chedorlaomer, And so we see that God worked in this way to deliver them even though they were wicked. So when someone looks at this text and thinks that God is just a, a, an, an angry God and is not patient and he just pours out his anger indiscriminately, we need to be careful that we're not doing or we're, that we would do justice with the text. That God is a God who is compassionate and he's long-suffering even with the most wicked people. In fact, we're reminded from the Apostle Paul that even at Corinth, God had delivered people from horrible backgrounds. And he said in these words, such were some of you, but God has shown his grace. And so when we look at that in chapter 14, these are recipients of God's deliverance through Abraham. And then if you remember that God established um, Abraham and Sarah and the, the flow of Genesis by the author Moses reminds us of the promise that God was going to bring. But we see that God is also working 
in Abraham's extended family through Lot. And I think also we need to remember here, while this is a crazy story that we come to in this text, that Lot is mentioned in Scripture as being righteous. And we'll see it multiple times. But he did dwell amongst a people that were wicked. And that doesn't excuse his response in this, these uh, verses. But we'll see that it shows how troubled he was and how it affected him. And we'll see that there's responsible or there's circumstantial uh, issues that come into our lives because of our own choices, even as believers. That God brings us in his providence to see what he's doing in our own redemption. So as we look at this this morning, I want to focus mainly on three points. First of all, that deliverance was determined by God. It has been announced from the very beginning that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, but he was going to deliver Lot. Secondly, we'll see the spiritual condition of these men of the city and that they had depraved demands and we get a look a horrible look at the effects of sin on human nature let alone the depravity that comes to such a place that it becomes a outcry to the surrounding world let alone to heaven itself and then lastly we'll see uh, how lot is having deliberations with these angels and the delay and make application as we close. So looking at this, we see that Lot is amongst a people that is exceedingly sinful. As we looked at last week, we know that all sin is damaging. All sin separates us from God. All sin is what uh, ultimately causes us to be under the wrath of God because of our sin. Why? Because he's a holy God. He is all holy. And when we consider the person of God, he is not a man. He is God himself. And God is eternal in his nature. And we have sinned against that eternal God. And therefore, to sin against our eternal God requires eternal judgment. And that is why it's so important in our day to underline the doctrine of God's, not only his wrath, but the doctrine of hell itself. That hell is not to be softened. It's not to be one that we gloss over. It's not that we do damage with the text and just emphasize the lack of hospitality that the Sodomites showed to these two angels, but rather to show the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man and that there's no way except God alone that can be delivered from such destruction. And so we see here a great weeping that should come to our minds. And we'll look at this more next week because we'll see that Abraham views the smoking city after it's destroyed. And you can only imagine what was going through his mind, even though the scripture is silent about his emotional condition. Calvin wrote this for over 400, 500 years ago on this, on this uh, commenting on this passage. He said, for nothing is more dangerous than to live or the public license of where, where the license of crime prevails. Yea, there is no pestilence so destructive as that corruption of morals, 
which is opposed neither by bylaws nor judgments nor any other remedies. And although Moses in the next chapter explains the most filthy crime, speaking of chapter 19, which reigned inside of them, we must nevertheless remember what Ezekiel teaches, that the men of Sodom did not fall just at once into such exact rebellious wickedness. But in fact, in the beginning, luxury from the fullness of bread prevailed and that afterwards pride and cruelty followed at length. And when they were given up to a reprobate mind, they were also driven headlong into brutal lusts. Therefore, if we dread this extreme and inordinate passion, let us cultivate temperance and frugality, and let us always fear, lest superfluity of food should impel us to luxury, lest uh, mine should be infected with pride on account of our wealth, and less delicacies should tempt us to give the reins to our lusts. So from the very get-go, we see that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did not start out in this condition. It was progressive in nature. And this is important to see because it's coming right out of the text of Scripture that sin is not something that is content to just dwell once in our lives. It seeks like a weed to establish roots in the human heart and to destroy it all the way till the image of God is so distorted in us that such evil comes before the nostrils of a holy God and it demands judgment. Now, we know from the text of Genesis that this has been the very trajectory of the book of Genesis. Have we not seen this all the way from the Garden of Eden, which was plunged mankind into sin? We saw the lowering of men's lifetimes. We see the uh, advancement of evil. We know that at the flood that God said that the violence of men was extremely wicked. And so he destroyed the world at that time. And not much time has, has elapsed since that great flood. Hundreds of years where it would be in great memory of many people if they simply considered their history. And yet in this context, we see that Sodom and Gomorrah had such a culture that advanced evil at a very quick pace that made other nations, although just as evil in the sense of not being right before God, made them look saintly. And I think this is important for us because we know that all sin is grievous to God, but not all sin has the same consequences. There's a depravity that accelerates when we celebrate sin and we celebrate its destructive nature and we want help in that and we join forces with others in that same depravity. As I read Calvin's words uh, a couple weeks ago, I saw in that the very definition of our own society. Is it not the same where we are making laws to make that which used to be looked on as evil and dangerous to society legal? And time does not permit me to go into all those areas from the death of the unborn all the way to redefining marriage, let alone celebrating all kinds of immorality, not to mention perversion seeing as normal. And so we live in a day not unlike Lot's. We find ourselves living amongst these same kinds 
of people who are devoted to destruction, let alone all who do not know Christ are devoted to destruction. And as we saw Abraham's heart in the last passage that he's pleading with God to save if he saw some righteous in that city, if there was 50, would the Lord show grace? And he says, yes, Abraham, I will show grace. If there's not 45, Lord, would you spare it? And he says, yes, for 45, I will do it. What about 40, Lord? Yes, I will, I will spare it. What about for 30? Yes, I will spare it. What about 20? Yes. What about 10? Even for 10, he would spare the city. And it came to the place where Abram knew, because he had started even at 50, knew that it was a terrible judgment that was awaiting Sodom and Gomorrah. As we look at this text, we see that these angels were delivering Lot. And that was their method. Notice in chapter 18, there was a visit and there was a twofold purpose to announce what the coming promise was going to be to Abram and his family. And then we see in chapter 19, the other purpose was to go and see whether these things are true. Look at verse 21 of chapter 18, that God, he says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to this outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. It doesn't mean that God is stupid. It doesn't mean that he has to see with his eyes. It's simply a communication of purpose that he is going to go down to them. The same terminology in the Hebrew is what we saw at the Tower of Babel. He was going to go down and see this great work that mankind had done. And literally, these two angels are incarnate walking into the city. And these angels, of course, are mentioned. There was three. We spoke of this last week that uh, Abraham uh, kept the Lord to, to speak to him about these things. And these two angels are walking off in our last text. And now they come to Sodom here in verse 1. And notice that it's evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now it's very interesting here to note these things. In those ancient cities, there was usually one entrance for fortification purposes, and so all traffic came through one entrance into the city. They were massive entrances that were hollow on both sides, and as you came in, most of the business and the transactions of that city were being done within the first hundred, several hundred yards of entrance into the city. And so when it speaks of he was sitting at the gates, this is where the conversations and the business transactions were taking place. And it's good to note here because we know that in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, rather, that it speaks of Lot being righteous. He was involved in his community. He was at the front of the city gates. And perhaps we get some insight here in verse 2 because of his offer to these two travelers. Notice what he says. It was in the evening. He's sitting at the gate. And when Lot sees them, he rose to meet them and he bowed his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Now, while the text doesn't tell us this, it seems that he is wanting to express not just welcome to the city, but great hospitality to these travelers, probably because he knows what the people of that city are like. And how do we know that? Well, it seems to lead us to that here in verse 3 as Moses writes this. 
He says, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Again, they haven't revealed to him who they are of being messengers from heaven. It reminds us of what the New Testament says in the book of James that many times we, we entertain angels unaware that we know from the stories of the scriptures that angels, when they appear, can often appear, uh, appear in, in human form. And so notice their answer to his request. In the end of verse 2, they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. You can almost hear the gasp of Lot at this point. You can almost hear the hard swallow that takes place when he realizes what they're seeking to do. But heaven is represented in these two angels coming before this city. Surely if they spend the night in the open square, they will know what the character of this town is like. And so in verse 3, look at Lot's insistence. He says, but he pressed them strongly. It's the same press that we'll see later in the text when they pressed Lot against the door. They pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Lot is considered a righteous man. Lot is dwelling amongst a sinful people. He knows what these sinful people are like. Lot is displaying excellent hospitality to these visitors. He is expressing a great love for them, even though he doesn't even know them. And then his worst nightmare happens. It says in verse 4, this is our second point, about the depraved demands of this city. Look at verse 4. It says, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, it's important to look at the text here in what is happening. Notice there's a unity of people here. Specifically, it mentions the men. Now, while women aren't mentioned, we know that women were uh, taken up with this same um, uh, depravity because they were also destroyed, as we'll see later in chapter 19. But it specifically brings out the men of the city. And I think this is an important note biblically because we see in the scriptures that God created man and woman differently. In fact, we look at the garden, what did he instruct Adam to do? Is ultimately to lead his wife, which he failed to do, which he failed to uh, lead her away from sin and ultimately led her into judgment. And from that point, we know the very curse upon Adam is that there would be this sense that he was constantly having to undo that which the fall had brought into his life. And so we see a lack of uh, initiative towards right and holy things. But the men of Sodom, notice, it's not reserved for just young men, which we often would like to excuse them in some way to say these are young men who don't know what they're doing, they've not been trained, they didn't have good families, so on and so forth. But notice, it says both young and old. And that should drop the very heart out of us seeing this. 
that both old and young were taken away. There was no propriety left. There was no training of any kind. There was no restraint to the evil of this town. And this is the very cry that is coming to heaven, that both old and young were partnering in evil. There was no restraint whatsoever in the wickedness that was overcoming this town and eating them literally alive. That the very image of God is being destroyed and that mankind was simply looking in the lust of their flesh to other people as mere animals, as hungry lions would look upon another piece of meat. And so it says here that he urged them because of knowing of this town and its place. That notice in verse four that they surround the house. There's a, a sense that security is to be uh, alarming here. And they're gathering around in a great mass. And such is for all of those that are righteous, that oftentimes we feel we're swimming upstream against a tide. We feel like the mass of humanity is so wicked in their sin, and we, seeking to follow the Lord in faithfulness, are constantly tempted on every side. Get with one of our college students or one of our high school students and ask them what it's like to go against the tide. As some of us adults often forget when we have our own social interactions around uh, mainly Christians and what that's like, but maybe some of you feel this even in business to be surrounded by those who are just do on a completely different, depraved direction than what God is calling you to. And so they surround the city, verse 5. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Again, another level of depravity. And when we look at this text... The author Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is being very, very kind in the way that he's portraying these people. Even the words that are used in the Hebrew grammar are very soft in comparison to what they could say. And I know there's much here in this text that you parents may need to unfold to your children, but notice what he says here. These men came to them asking, where are these men? And then this horrific line that we see, bring them out to us that we may know them. Now it's very important to us to see what this is and what this is speaking of, but this is certainly a euphemism of their lustful intents towards these visitors. Now, while we look at this word know, it can be a euphemism for um, knowing someone sexually as we see in the Hebrew yada, but we also see that they um, are ultimately seeking uh, selfish purposes for being greeted by them or knowing them. And this is sinful to the core because notice the selfishness is just so extreme that the word spread as these men came to Lot's house. Lot, we'll see, was already on display as being a judge before them, as we'll see uh, here in a few moments in verse 9, but that the word has spread, and there's a very much a gang mentality. 
In fact, our sin is never stops at that point with just us and our own lust. It wants company and it wants the focus and the attention of all the community. Isn't this what we're experiencing? I was disheartened even last month on our church computer as I pulled up our calendar for the church. It's on Google Calendar. And on the calendar, on each day of the month, it was reminding me that it was Pride Month. And so I did a search for how to remove that because I certainly didn't put it there. And I was discouraged that in order to delete it off my calendar, I had to delete all holidays, including Easter and Christmas and other true holy days. And in my discouragement, I realized I'm in the same place as those who have gone before me. And truly, we see here the depths of human pride. There's no, no mistake here. This is why they call it Pride Month. We're proud in our sin. We're proud of it to the core where we want everyone to celebrate it. We want that same flood of dissipation. We want it to be ours. And we want to, by loudness and by our own depravity, to silence any righteous person who would dare speak against our freedoms. This, my friends, before you think it's someone else, is the condition of your heart and mine. Because we rage against the Almighty in our own sin and depravity until the love of God our Savior appeared in Christ Jesus and he delivered us from such a depravity. And so we see here that this situation is very dark. And so what happens here? They're requesting this, this great evil and Lot goes out to the men at the entrance and he shuts the door. He wants his guests to be secure. And in verse 7, he says, I beg you, my brothers. Don't miss that. I beg you, my brothers. Lot has been in Sodom long enough where he relates to them on a friendly level. He's pleading with them. They're certainly not his brothers in faith, but he's pleading with them. There's a sense of affection that he's appealing to them, knowing who they are, that they wouldn't do what they're about to do. And he says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And so in verse 8, we see the depths of anxiety upon even a righteous man that he would try to solve this great sinful account by sinning himself or suggesting sinful things. Many have said that perhaps it's because these daughters of his were betrothed that nothing would come of it. But either way, Lot suggests what most fathers would just break seeing this verse. And it says in verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And you think about that for a minute, how confusing that is. 
but this is the condition of the righteous in a sinful world. We often are begging and grasping for ways to see that such sin would not happen and Lot being deceived in this way would offer such a solution. We can see the great strains that Lot is under and we'll see this same countenance happen through the rest of this passage. But Lot is in trouble here and he knows it. And rather than crying out to God, he suggests such an evil thing as they take his daughters in place of these fellows. But it seemed right to him to guard these men of such evil from the city that he would even sacrifice himself by stepping out, let alone his own family in their stead. And so we see the great conundrum that Lot is in. That these that he's seeking to protect he finds out are protecting him. Look at verse 9. But the crowd, they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Do you see the great lengths to which these people have fallen that they're not even acting by human reasoning. As he pleads with them, he offers them even immoral solutions to this problem and they reject it. And they say, therefore, you are no longer to be our judge. Notice that Lot had communicated that he was sojourning among them. We know that he was not there uh, permanently, but notice they see him as a moral uh, above their morality, that he has become their judge. And more than likely, this is not something that Lot is doing on his own accord or looking to his own morals. So let's take a look at a few other passages here that will help us understand this. Turn over, uh, first of all, to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, and look down to verse 6. We don't have time to look at all the passages in Scripture, but if you would get a concordance and look at where Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned as examples, they're numerous throughout the Scriptures. So I'm just bringing a highlight to several of them uh, from the Scriptures. So Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, speaking of uh, judgment of false teachers and false prophets, um, Peter says this, he says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, there's that key that I was looking for here in verse 7, that we see that Lot's character, even though it's not in the, uh, the text of Genesis, we see that he was distressed by this sensual conduct of the wicked. In verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Have you ever been distressed over the sinfulness of those around you? 
I remember years ago, there was some things on the ballot here in West Jefferson that I went to a public hearing. I don't often go to every public hearing, but there was some ideas about certain kinds of businesses that were looking to be established here. And I was proud of our town leaders that ultimately turned these requests down and saved probably our town from great debauchery and other sinful things that would have affected all of our families. But in this sense, uh, Lot was being tormented day after day. And then the Lord, it says, knows how to rescue the godly out of trials. So even in the sense of this, it doesn't mean that we are just waiting for God to drop fire from heaven, but that God does put us in every place calling people to repentance and faith. And we know from this text and others that that is exactly what Lot was doing. He was giving them an example of righteousness, calling them to repentance. Take a look over at Jude, verse 7. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. Jude chapter 7, speaking about, again, the judgment of false teachers and the sinful. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. In the Greek, that means other flesh. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, what is this being an example of? There was a perversion that rose out of just the regular channel of hearing about human sin. There was an extra uh, um, increasing measure of depravity here at Sodom and Gomorrah that was crying out that God would judge. And when we think about this, God is actually being merciful in bringing quick and swift judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It could have uh, resulted in even greater sin should he not have acted. And so we see here, they're questioning his motives as judge. And he says, or the, the crowd says that we will deal worse with you than with them. So there is the threat. And then he says, then they pressed hard against the man lot and they drew near to break down the door. But the men, speaking of the angels, reached out their hands We'll see this same um, word here when they take their hands later in the text. And brought Lot into the house with them, and they shut the door. And it's at this point that these men reveal why they were sent to Sodom, and that it means judgment for one group of people and salvation for another. Look at verse 11. It says, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now, we shouldn't just see this as physical blindness, although that is certainly characterized here, but there's a sense of such uh, blindness to their own morality that they don't even know where they're at. And so however that these angels brought divine blindness upon them, these could no longer even find the door to accomplish what they were doing. It was a preemptive way in uh, preventing evil that ultimately God would judge by the next morning. But even here shows his long suffering and his grace even to these that are in such a condition. And so in verse 12, the men said to Lot, 
Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place. And so while we have looked at the determined deliverance of these two angels to accomplish their mission, and while we see the depraved demands of these people, we see here now the deliberations and the delays that happen in rescuing Lot and his family. And so the angels are saying, bring all out who belong to you. And we see also a little more of Lot's situation with his family, starting in verse 13. The angels warn, for we are about to destroy this place because of the great outcry against his people has become great before the Lord. And most of you will see there the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The same God who had made a covenant with Abraham was going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of the place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now notice in the context of time here, this is in the middle of the night. They have sought refuge, they have eaten the evening meal, and it was before they were about to go to bed that this was all happening. So he is going to his family in the middle of the night and saying, leave the city, we have to go because the Lord is going to destroy the city. Isn't this much like our her heralding of the gospel? That we flee to Jesus while he can be found before it's too late? before the ark door is shut and the Lord returns in judgment. Today is the day of salvation that we are called to run to him. And for many of our friends and family, they say, hey, we accept your morals. You can live the way that you want to. There's nothing for us to worry about. We're gonna keep going. It's gone this way for thousands of years. And this Jesus that you said was gonna come back has never come back. And today will be just like yesterday. The sun will come up and the sun will go down and we continue living how we want. But little do they know that judgment awaits at the door. And so the warning goes out to his family. And it says in verse 15, as the morning dawned, that the angels urged Lot, up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. The delay that has already happened is putting them in danger of great uh, uh, being swept away with the same punishment of the city. And so in verse 16, you hear the urging of, or in verse 15, the urging of these angels. And in verse 16, notice Lot's response, but he lingered. How often as Christians, do we cling to the things of this world that are passing away? How often do we value so much where God has planted us in this physical life that we forget that we will live thousands of years on into eternity with our Lord and Savior? How often do we make choices in light of today rather than in light of eternity? How often do we cling to the things that are really passing away, really at the door of passing away, and yet God is calling us on to look to more beautiful, holy, and eternal things? That's why Paul, the apostle, pleading with the Colossians, says, set your mind on things above, not on the things on this earth, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
There was a part of righteous Lot that was still familiarized with dwelling in Sodom when God had designed by his great power and providence to deliver him to a coming city that would be so great that he would have balked at what he had settled in. And while it looked beautiful on this earth, it compares with nothing to the eternal city that God was building for Abraham, for Lot, and all who would follow him by faith. And so he lingered. How often is that our hearts, that we linger? For whatever reason, we see his astonishment that the immediacy of the hour that he would linger. And so the angels, it says, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord, notice, being merciful to him and brought him out and set him outside the city. Before we just look at this and think that this text is for other people, how often is it that we are slow to flee from our sin? We're slow to flee from sinful things. We're slow to flee that which we know is under the devoted destruction of the Almighty. And we linger, we wait. Now we know that Lot is righteous. We know that he knows the Lord and he's going to be delivered. But there's this sense of, of dragging his feet and they in grace, by God's grace, is merciful to them, and they deliver them out of the city. And notice verse 17, the urgency. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And we know the great dragging of feet that is happening because Lot responds to such a great command to escape with this. Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. We see his acknowledgement of their work and what God is doing in saving him. But he says, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die speaking ultimately of the deserted place of this high country, speaking of what his future would be. And we know that in the following chapters, we see the great sadness that probably overtook Lot in the sense of him uh, drinking much. And we know that this same state uh, was also the state of Noah after the flood. I think it's important to parallel those that um, Noah uh, probably did not get drunk by accident in the text of Scripture. And so we see a great depravity going on even as Lot wrestles against his own flesh. But he desires to be delivered. He does want this, but he is not wanting to go to this place and yet has requests on the way that he's being delivered. How often do we do this? How often are we like Lot in requesting not just a contentment with the Lord Jesus Christ and his great deliverance of sinners, but we request even more and we seek to add to it that we would have a certain lifestyle or a certain way that God would show his kindness. No, it's not wrong to ask for such blessings in life, but notice the context of what uh, God is doing in Lot's life. He's trying to deliver him. And he's settling. And so he requests to go to this little city and 
that he would not die in the wilderness. And so in verse 20, it says, behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is this not a little one? So you hear his pleading that God would show kindness and mercy to him, that he could have this one request, that he could go to this city, which ultimately meant this little town would be spared the judgment. And how often it comes to us from the text that to be in the desert places with the Lord should cause us to be content rather than in the blessings of the most uh, godless. And though while we would have great riches and everything our eyes or mouth could desire, that it's under the judgment of God. And so in his kindness, notice in verse 21, it doesn't say the angels, it now speaks of God himself. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. And so God in his kindness gives to his child Lot great deliverance, but also his request. But notice in verse 22, he doesn't lose a heartbeat to say, escape there quickly for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which ultimately means little. And we see reference to that back in chapter 13. So what can we see here for us this morning? Well, first of all, we see the great deliverance that God does in delivering us from a wicked world and from our own sin. We see the great kindness of God, that God will not bring judgment upon this world until he delivers us, until the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. We also will rise to meet the Lord when he returns. We will forever be with the Lord, as the Apostle Paul says, but judgment will come. There will be an end. There will be a final judgment upon this world. And we don't know the hour or the day, but we do know that it's coming. And it makes this text look like a mere campfire compared to the eternal fires of hell to where the devil, his angels, and sinful mankind will have their lot. And so God calls us to many things here. He calls us to a great soberness, a great soberness in seeing how we are living amongst the unrighteous, that the, the flax and the weeds are together at this time, that God will one day separate them and he knows those who are his. And we should take great comfort from the scriptures that he does know us and there will not be judgment until he delivers us. Secondly, we see God's great kindness to the righteous, something that comes ultimately from his purpose that he has plucked us, his dear children, from the fire. But we also see his righteousness in the destruction of the wicked. And that while God is not taking uh, great pleasure in the death of the wicked, we do know that his righteousness demands it and he is glorified in the death of the wicked. And oftentimes when we read the scriptures, we think what a horrible thing, but a righteous and holy God will be glorified. And so in this, we also see the great challenge of us as his people to walk after him in humility, realizing that we also could be where these sodomites ended up, 
we could be in that same uh, culture of dissipation that would lead us into all kinds of immorality. And such were some of you, but God delivered you and he's called us in righteousness to follow after him. I think also a warning for us in the present day that as we seek to preach the gospel, that we don't simply make this passage about those who are depraved to this level, particularly homosexuals, particularly those who have gone after strange flesh, as it says here. It implies that there was bestiality as well in the context of Sodom, that it was beyond just what we would see as modern-day perversions. But we see it nonetheless in our day. But we call out to those calling them to repentance while there's still time to repent. Not in the ways that Lot did, per se, but we are calling out to them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But there's a great humility in doing so. And that we're doing that because we know that God is bringing judgment, but also that he is able to save those who call out to him. Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the beauty of this passage is that we ought to be with great compassion, with even tears in our eyes, calling out to such depraved communities and not just separating ourselves and waiting the judgment of God like we would see Jonah doing, but to urge upon them repentance and that we would show them the love of Christ. But we see this throughout our day as well, that oftentimes the least, the last, and the lost beyond are beyond us, beyond the reach, we think, of the gospel. But God promises that everyone who hears can receive. And if they receive and they hear and they turn in faith to the Lord Jesus, they will be saved. But what we need is those to go and preach the gospel to them. So pray that we would not find in our day a place where there is no room for repentance. And pray for this country that is making laws to dwell in a land that calls evil good and good evil. Woe to us. We are a young nation, and while this is not political in nature, any nation who gives themselves over to sin will be judged. But we also know the great depravity that mainly is being exported to the world through the Western world. The United States is not alone in this, but there's a level of depravity to which we cannot return from, and God's judgment is clear, and God's judgment is holy, and it's secure, but we also know that the righteous are secure more. So cry out to the Lord, my message would be, if you do not know the Lord, today is the day of salvation. Today you can have your sins forgiven. Today you can know the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your sins would be washed away and that you would be as if cleansed. And yet at the same time, for us, we can be encouraged that God will save you. We know that God will save the righteous that he will cause us to endure even until his coming, until we see him face to face. But at the same time, a great humility and soberness of spirit should be our disposition as we await the entrance to the celestial city. Let's pray. Father, what a tough passage, especially in our day. Such pastors as myself are tempted to not want to preach such messages, aren't 
wanting in their own flesh to look at these kinds of texts. They certainly don't even seem welcoming to a newcomer or someone we're seeking to get acquainted with. But Lord, your word is true and your word is holy. We thank you for the trajectory of expository preaching, of walking through each text that we are forced by your great kindness to see your word, to interpret your word, and to apply your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of Abraham and even Lot in this passage, even though there's much that is to be learned by the opposite. We know it's an example. That, Lord, would we have a heart like Abram to plead for the, the mercy of God upon a sinful world. But, Lord, would we also have the great expediency of these angels that represented heaven to be delivered quickly, that we would not find ourselves mixed in with those who are clinging to the things of this world, but that we would adjoin ourselves to the citizens of heaven and to look on and think about those things that are yet to come. And Lord, just like this refreshing rain that is coming upon this area right now, Lord, would you refresh our spirits knowing that you also will deliver us, that you will bring times of refreshing as we turn to you. And Lord, would you, by your grace, draw many to faith in Christ out of depraved and horrible backgrounds. Lord, we pray that in the, the debauchery and the sinfulness of our depraved world that you would deliver many, young and old, from the great confines of the lust that we've seen in this text. That you would deliver many from human trafficking, that you would deliver many from the lusts of men and women that drive such uh, organizations. That, Lord, you would deliver those who are running after strange flesh, that your great kindness and mercy would be evident in their lives as you take them out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Oh, Lord, give us hearts to pray for those in such depravity, from those who are in depths of sin, but also those that we know very well that may seek to skate by with a great morality or goodness, but they just as much are depraved and needing of your great forgiveness. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. Thank you for your grace upon the hearer. This is a tough passage to swallow. Would you work it into our hearts that we might treasure you more than anything else and that we would glorify you with our lives and that, Lord, in your goodness, that you would make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.